read about thought-provoking topics? Read along with a stress-free book club that fits into a busy lifestyle. From out of the pages to real life, explore the fine line between fiction and nonfiction as we pull from bestsellers that will change your life. Tune in to our bi-weekly book club of mind-bending and empowering stories hosted by Nova Lorraine, founder of Rain Magazine, and her two co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Book Club. This is Nova Lorraine, and I'm here with my beautiful co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hi. Our books are smart fiction and thought-provocative nonfiction for individuals that are on a journey of growth. And if this is your first time here, definitely hit that subscribe button. You do not want to miss any episodes of Tuesday's Book Club, where we bring you the most transformational books and bestsellers that we believe will change your life. And so today's book is Hunger, a memoir of my body by Roxanne Gay. And before we go into the summary and our conversations and thoughts about this book, I want you to know the next two books we're going to cover, which is The Cafe on the Edge of the World by John Strzelecki and Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. Again, that's The Cafe on the Edge of the World and Sacred Hoops. Those are our next two books on the list. So make sure you jot that down so you can get a head start and join us when we go over those books as well. So for those that have been with us along this journey, we know that we cover the summary by the publisher. And so let's read what the publisher has to say about hunger. I ate and ate and ate in the hopes that if I made myself big, my body would be safe. I buried the girl I was because she ran into all kinds of trouble. I tried to erase every memory of her, but she is still there, somewhere. I was trapped in my body, one that I barely recognized or understood, but at least I was safe. New York Times bestselling author Roxane Gay has written with intimacy and sensitivity about food and bodies, using her own emotional and psychological struggles as a means of exploring our shared anxieties over pleasure, consumption, appearance, and health. As a woman who describes her own body as wildly undisciplined, Roxanne understands the tension between desire and denial, between self-comfort and self-care. In Hunger, she casts an insightful and critical eye on her childhood, teens, and 20s, including the devastating act of violence that acted as a turning point in her young life and brings readers into the present and the realities, pains, and joys of her daily life. With the bracing candor, vulnerability, and authority that have made her one of the most admired voices of her generation, Roxanne explores what it means to be overweight in a time when the bigger you are, the less you are seen. Hunger is a deeply personal memoir from one of our finest writers and tells a story that hasn't yet been told, but needs to be. So that's the summary. And I'm going to stop there and I want to hear what you ladies have to say. What is the first thing that you want to share about hunger? Well, I mean, for me, I was brokenhearted over the fact that she said that her parents were wonderful and she chose not to tell them that she was basically gang raped by a boyfriend and his friends because that would have been such a different path for her. And it's not that usually you hear tragic stories of someone that had bad parents and led to this situation 
in her situation, she admitted it was on her. And just, it made me so sad that she wasn't able to tell anyone because of her own mental idea of what she should and should not look like to the world and to her parents. It it was just so sad. Yeah, I agree with you. I definitely was heartbroken with that. Oh my gosh, horrible, horrible event that happened to her at such a young age. Barbara, what would you like to say? I definitely, in the beginning of this book and just reading what she went through and then reading how she internalized it at, at the age she was 12 years old when this happened to her and just not feeling, I don't know, she just didn't feel safe enough to tell her parents or maybe she felt like she was protecting them. Either way, it's just for her to be so alone processing this at such a young age definitely broke my heart. It definitely broke my heart. For her to carry this with her through her adult life and her overeating was like a way of trying to help her process it or trying to help her protect herself, punishing herself. I mean, there's so many issues and regarding this, regarding her overeating, regarding the situation, regarding how she felt in her relationships with her parents, with her brothers. I want to jump in. I agree. I think, and let's just back up a little bit. I think it's important to cover or just at least set the scene of where she is, a little bit of information about her family. So she is of Caribbean descent, right? If I remember incorrectly. And is she Haitian, guys? Do you remember? Yeah, she's Haitian. Okay. So I'm Haitian and they're living in the Midwest as well. And she has two siblings, two brothers, and she is the oldest. And so they had recently moved to a new town and she's the outsider. She's the new girl. And she throws herself into books because that's where she finds her safe place, her way of adventure. She doesn't really have friends. But how she's described though, she's a very pretty girl. She's lanky. She's pretty, you know, she's like the preteen maybe a little awkward, but more on the attractive side. And she's super smart and her parents are extremely accomplished. And so life is good outside the fact of they moved to a new town and she has to figure out the whole friend thing. But it was a upper middle-class family seemed pretty stable. As she described her childhood with her brothers, it, it sounded very happy and fulfilled. And so that I think is also just a groundwork that we want to lay in shape. Do you guys want to add any more in terms of her background or where she lived or anything like that? I think that she, she explained that she was in, in a time, they were very successful. Yeah, very affluent. Yeah. And I think she talked about like all good looking. Her brothers are good looking. Her parents are good looking. Fairly disciplined. She was not raised in a house that they weren't disciplinarians, but like didn't see food in a way that was anything but a means to an end, never thought anything of it. Like her parents, there wasn't a ton of snacks. It was all in moderation. So I remember thinking what a dichotomy growing up that way. And then this tragic episode that occurs with her and her boyfriend. And it just struck me how in your preteen and teen years, the insecurity that you have Certainly moving is difficult. My mom moved a lot and found that difficult growing up. But just having like this situation with this boy and then spoiler alert, the craziest thing is after that whole thing happened, she continued to see him until they moved and blew my mind, blew my mind. Yeah, and to me, like I'm Haitian American. My parents are both Haitian. 
And then they moved here and then they had, that's where they met each other, started a family. So I can understand a lot of how she was growing up. My dad was educated. He he was in the white collar world. Uh, my mom worked um, in a nursing home. Education was a very big deal in my family. And we were very loving. Also, food wasn't something that was like, just like in her family, food was sustenance. It was there for us to eat. Granted, my mother was an amazing, amazing cook, but it wasn't like a reward. It wasn't a punishment. It was it was just there. She, my mom came home. She either cooked for us in the breakfast when she was at, you know, when she wasn't working. Dinner was always made fresh. It was always made. We very rarely had leftovers because we were a huge family. So we did. <laughs> I don't think leftovers was even a thing in, in our family back then. So I got that. So I empathize with her for that in that respect of her not being able to be a part of a community. My mother took, uh, had my sister and I go to private school and we were the minority in the private schools that we went to until I went to Catholic school. So I did kind of feel out of place. I did kind of feel like I had to be a little bit different to get my footing. But as I got older for me, and I didn't have that experience that she had, I was like, well, here I am. This is me. Like, love me or or don't, this is how I'm going to be. Unfortunately for her, she grabbed onto this gentleman in her preteen years where we're still finding out who we are. We're still finding out we love what we don't love. I think girls at that age are incredibly insecure. We're going through so much. Our bodies are changing. We start getting acne, all those things. So I think with her and this gentleman who was a lot older than her, he was pretty much, I think from what I remember the book, it's been, it's kind of been a while uh, since I read it. He, people didn't really pay her any mind. So for him to be very attractive, very popular, and here he is paying her that attention. I think she held onto that and she didn't want to let that go. So even when she was gang raped, even when he did violate her prior to the gang rape, he, he had her do things that made her feel incredibly uncomfortable she was willing to do it because she didn't have anyone else to have that type of relationship with. She had no one else to to be friends with. So he was her only, I guess, friend, her only connection outside of her family. I want to jump in there. I think that's a great point that you made. And so, yeah, I think this young man was 16 and she was 12. And it was, <laughs> you mentioned that she was alone and Publicly, she was alone. She didn't have friends. She kept in her books when she was on the bus. And here's this older, popular kid in school notices that, oh, that person over there is alone. And that's just something as parents that we should pay attention to. And it may not be our child, maybe a friend of our children or just someone else where it's easy for someone to be a victim if they're perceived to be alone. They perceive to be needing attention or love or affection. And he took advantage of that situation. And like you said, she was like, wow, the star athlete is paying attention to me, me, you know, and not feeling worthy where that was just like everything to her, even if it, it meant that she was going against what she felt her parents would approve of or what she herself approved of. What she, like you said, prioritized was this attention. And so I think it's so important that that loneliness can really go sideways fast as it did for her, because for her to go back to him, like when, and that's not revealed until later, spoiler alert for those of you that haven't (laughs) read the book, but for her to go back to him 
after such a violent and disgraceful experience that he had put her in. And for however, like what? Like, how do you not go even deeper and deeper and deeper into a place of lack of love or lack of self-respect or depression? Or surprisingly, she didn't turn to drugs to escape, but she turned to food to escape. Yeah. And I think what's interesting for me with her is, I mean, she used food, the way she described it was to eat herself, to make herself unattractive. Mm. And I think that's interesting, but I'm going to take it a step further that she never says in the book, I actually have an eating disorder. I'm very transparent. It's always there, but it's like, what do they say? It's like remission. It started probably in high school. I had a really good friend. I never thought about my weight. It's very skinny. And then it depends who you become friends with. I had a friend who was skinny too, but would talk about like, oh, I'm going to get diet soda. And I'd be like, what's diet soda? And it shifted my view of the way I look. And it started, and it was very mild. I didn't have an eating disorder then. I was paying attention more. And then I went to college at University of Florida. And I think I gained like 10 pounds just being ridiculous. 10 of the freshman 15 and being so thin growing up kind of freaked me out. Like, I'm like, oh my God, what the heck? I didn't think I could gain weight. And that's when my eating disorder started. But what happened was I was surrounded by a lot of other people that were also had eating disorders. So Mm. everybody was teaching aerobics and they were all doing weird things. And I developed, it's called anorexia bulimia because I would not eat a lot, but I still would try to purge it with laxatives. Mm. And I think the reason why I connect a little bit, and I think in this book, what's really devastating is at the very end of the book, you want the happy ending and it's not there. She's still Mm. struggling. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I still struggle with like body dysmorphia, but I think what's interesting for me is she keeps thinking it's to make herself unattractive. And that's the underlying thing. And I think it's more of control because Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. for me growing up, I never had any control in my childhood at all. I come from a divorced family. A lot of unwanted things occurred and I could never control that. But one thing you can control is food. You cannot make someone eat when they don't want to eat. Mm -hmm. That's why anorexia is such a tragedy because you see these parents whose children will not eat. There's nothing they can do. It's the Mm -hmm. one thing you really have ultimate control. She had ultimate control. I certainly had ultimate control, but it was the control for me that I think is the underlining thing. Yes, it came from wanting like this very thin body to come back, to go back to the way I used to look when I was in high school, when I had the most confidence probably. But I think underlining for eating disorders is that if you've ever had a place in your life that you have had no control, and for her, it was that incident. Mm, That's a really interesting point. Yeah. And thanks for sharing. It is devastating. And there's a couple people that's very close to me that's had to deal with both of those disorders. And it's like, you just don't even know when it starts. Right. And a lot of it is just the self-perceived person they see in the mirror. But with Roxanne, what was also interesting that I, as I read it and she said, she just turned to food to, she also said to protect herself, right? right. She wanted to be so she wanted to create this layer, this armor around her so no one could hurt her again. And I just thought that was so interesting because I just never heard that before. I mean, the control thing, yes. And being unattractive, that makes, uh, that's obvious in terms of understanding what she was trying to portray there. But I was like, wow, to see your body as an armor, to see yourself as too frail or too weak or too small to fight back. I thought that was really interesting. and. 
I could see why the struggle is still there because when do you take the armor away? And you know what, too, because to me, it kind of reminded me this book. I was listening to a group of people and that talked about the conversation was about undesirable and desirability. And this young lady, shout out to Hunter, spoke on the she's what we would call overweight. And she says that in itself has attracted people to her that she didn't unwanted attention, sexual attention as well. And I think about myself, like I do overeat and it is something that I have also been working on over the years. And I see it as a layer of protection for me, which has to do with unwanted attention through situations in the past that I couldn't control. So I, I look at it as a one part control for me, but then it's not really a control because I still get unwanted attention. And the conversation that I had with this, I was a part of, it made me realize, and reading this book as well, made me realize that this is not control. Because when you see Roxanne, when she talks about having this layer of protection on her, but yet look at the relationships she was in. She was still not treated well. She still put herself in, re- in situations for her to suffer, for her to yeah. be on the wrong end, you understand, on the wrong end of, of the barrel. She still put herself in these situations that her, pa- and now her parents see it because she can no longer hide it. Mm-hmm. And her parents are now there are helping her. Her parents are now, and I guess that's when she realized, you know what, if I talked to them when I was younger, when this first happened, they would have been able to help me because mm-hmm. now what they're doing is they're putting Band-Aids on a bleeding wound. Mm. And she was what, in her late 30s when she told them? Yes. I think it was late 30s when she finally let them know. And remember, I thought it was interesting. I mean, obviously the gastro bypass are more successful now, but she had a chance to solve this. And I'm not saying I, I'm pro or against it, but I certainly think I probably lean more to pro. I have a few friends that have had those done and their lives are better. They they were morbidly obese. They're, they ha- were needing like double knee operations from all the weight you're carrying. So there is an in- incredible risk by having all that weight on you. And when she was at the moment to maybe have that surgery, she ended up not doing it. And yes, there was, she was afraid of dying, right? But she also maybe deep down inside was afraid of not being heavy anymore. I don't know. Like, and But see too, Toby, when you think about it, when, and, and I'm just going to go to go off of my experience and experience of, of people that I know who actually have had it as well. Right. The overeating is like, can't and, do it and, just like Roxanne said, it's, it's something that they're dealing with mentally. So if they don't address that issue mentally, it's right. going to go, that overeating will become drinking, that overeating will become drugs, that overeating will become sexual desires, that overeating will become something else to compensate what it is that they haven't addressed. I have a loved one who did have the gastric sleeve, gorgeous, beautiful young lady, but she ended up, instead of overeating, she started to drink. Unfortunately, she died of psoriasis of the liver. Wow. She didn't address the issue. She's beautiful, I love, wonderful. Oh my gosh, she was my heart and soul. She didn't address the issue that was causing her to overeat. Wow. And I think Roxanne, without realizing it, recognized that in herself, that she didn't that issue, the reason why she was overeating in the first place wasn't going to be addressed with having that gastric sleeve. It was going mm. to, because think about it. She was in these relationships. She was doing a lot of things 
mm-hmm. that were outside of her normal yeah. and trying to make them her normal. Yeah. And it was just causing more and more stress to her life and to the life of those around her. Had she had that gastric sleeve, I believe that it would have just, she would have had more issues in those aspects of her life that were already drowning her. You know, I thought it was interesting how even though she, you would, in my mind, you would have thought that she would have staved off and never wanted to be, have sex with anyone ever again, because that was the violation. But if anything, she was promiscuous. Which is interesting. Like she went Very to food, but you're nor- in my mind, the thing you really avoid is the thing that was the worst thing that happened to you, which wasn't food. It was someone gang raping you. Instead, it's so weird how everybody processes differently. She went ahead and has had a lot of relationships with a lot of people and fairly promiscuous ones. That were unhealthy and yeah. Yeah. dangerous yeah. as well. I've seen it. I'm just going back to my psychology training. I've seen it go both ways, right? You're either going to be very promiscuous and it's, you're repeating the pain and what she did with going back to the perpetrator, the main perpetrator afterwards, or you are, have no interest whatsoever. Right. And it's the, the, the thought of engaging brings you right back to that moment. And then you have those that disassociate where the memory doesn't exist, right? Until there's a trigger. Right. I have friends like that. I have friends like that. They don't even remember their childhood. I think what's really interesting too with me, with her, because I have daughters and we all have children, is just that incredible stressor of not being able, like I so passionately related not only to her, but to her parents and how they desperately just wanted to find a solution. But yet the children know that, like she can feel the pressure when she loves them she sees them, they have relationships, but yet she described at one point towards the end of the book, going over there and the, like, and spending a couple days and being keenly aware of like them watching her eat and her being on her best behavior. And as a parent, desperately wanting my, my children's mental health to be better. One of my daughters has been struggling for a year now with really severe mental health issues. And I get the parent side of just trying to find a solution and how that must feel stressful on the other side, because they know that we want that solution and they want the solution, but there's no, right now there's not traction. And I will say this too, coming from the child who was chubby (laughs) and now I'm a parent who, now as a parent, as an adult on the other side, I grew up and I was called all kinds of different names (laughs) and when I was younger and it was playful, but it definitely hurt me. Right. And then my parents, and I know that they wanted the best for me. I think just the way they went about wanting me to lose weight, even now as an adult, I love when my mother introduces me, like she'll say, I have a twin who is, I call her the Arnold Schwarzenegger to my Danny DeVito, if anybody's familiar with that <laughs> metaphor yeah. from the movie Twins. Yeah. And I say that with love because Danny DeVito is my heart. He's so funny. I, she'll say, she'll talk about my sister and then she'll go, and this is my daughter. I wish she would lose weight. Like she's apologizing to the person she's introducing me to for me being larger than I am quote unquote supposed to be. And she doesn't realize that it does hurt me when she says that. Yeah. Because I do, I am definitely working on losing weight. I'm I'm getting healthy and everything like that. But over the years when I was struggling a lot with it, it was very painful And I would say to her, I wish instead of doing that, we would just, you know, go out to eat. You don't have to say, hey, don't eat this. Eat this instead. I'm an adult. I know what I need to do. So for me and and reading this book, 
I just kind of wish that her parents, I don't know, could have went about it a little bit differently. Like her brothers could have went about it a little bit. And I know kids are teased. The, the family, they tease and they stuff, but it's hard. It's hard though, Barbara. It, you yeah, know, it is it's really hard. They don't see it. You know how hard it is for the person that they're doing it to. Yeah. And and I can't even give you a solution because like, I'll say it didn't bother me. Sometimes it didn't bother me. And then sometimes it motivated me. And then sometimes it made me feel a certain way because it's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable right now with how a lot of people are saying, well, being overweight is normal. Actually, it's not normal because it, it's, Health wise, you can't be a certain weight and be healthy, a hundred percent healthy. So right. I'm not comfortable with how with the way Roxanne wrote it in the book, where it's not a healthy thing to be overweight. It's not something that we should normalize. I think we should be healthy. We should have a strong heart. We should be able to have a fit, a certain fitness level. You know, if we ever get sick, it helps. Where this is our bodies that we should treat like it's something special to us. And I think when we do overeat or when we undereat or when we, you know what I'm saying? We don't eat too much. All these things we do is we're just stripping our bodies of the beauty that it is and it's supposed to be. So that was one thing about the book that kind of made me like raise my eyebrow. Like I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to normalize what you're doing. I want you to find out what's hurting you so right. that you can fix it. And then you can get healthy physically and mentally and spiritually. That's a great point. I was, you were talking, I was trying to remember, did she ever mention that she s- sought out counseling? Yeah. Yeah, she does. And she has. Did it happen when she was a teenager? Did her parents? No. Okay. So my question is because every summer that she came home, she went away to boarding school, as we know, I think a year after the incident. And she lived away from home all through college. So just imagine this happens to you a year later, you go off and you're on your own. But every summer she came home, she was heavier and her parents were just, whoa, especially the first summer, they were beside themselves because they didn't recognize their daughter. And then every summer they were very proactive in helping her lose weight. So what came to me as you were sharing, Barbara, was, wait a minute, I don't remember her parents ever taking her to a variety of counselors or clinicians, psychological clinicians, to attempt to figure out what was behind the sudden weight gain. They did all the dieting tricks and the camps and all of this. So to your point with how parents manage the problem, if you're just putting the Band-Aid on and not addressing the root cause of it, then it's always going to manifest and re-manifest. So I thought that was really interesting because I was like, I don't really remember her parents intervening from a mental health standpoint. No, I don't think they did. And I think what's interesting is like even now, and that's what's kind of crushing is even after writing a cathartic book and going through all this and having her parents the same issues are still there. And, and I don't t- say that as a judging. I, to this day, the reason why I said mine is dormant is I don't use laxatives. I don't purge anymore. Where it's not is it's always there, the critical analysis of myself. And I've done a lot of searching and I definitely am not miserable all the time, but I don't, it's when they say it's an eating disorder is forever. It really is forever. At least it sits in your mind, just like any mental health issues. And for her, I'm not judging her in that I don't think that it's not there forever. But I'm constantly trying to evolve. And I don't I agree with Barbara in the acceptance of it that it's okay. It's not okay. Because it's not it's we're not I'm not saying she should be a certain weight, but certainly morbidly obese is not okay, because you're killing yourself. And for me, like my husband is not morbidly obese, but he is definitely has more weight on him than than he should. And I am 
I have like this serious, crazy fear that he's going to leave me sooner than he should because of it. And I'm constantly racking my brains on how to motivate him. And it is the most frustrating thing to sit by someone's side to know that they will not be here as long as they would be if they were healthier. And for him, it's an addiction. And he'll admit that like he is, it's like he has family members that are alcoholics. And if there's a bottle open, it's going to be gone before the evening's over because that's alcoholism. But eating disorders like overeating is just like alcoholism. If there's food there, for me, if there's candy in the house, I'm going to eat it. I don't put that in my house because I love candy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so crazy because I, I think about, and it just, I, it just occurred to me. So I, there's a couple, I need to backtrack a little bit. There was one thing that she had talked about in the book where she said every time she would lose weight, she would start panicking. Remember when we, and I was like, well, no same mistake. She's still being treated a certain way, but in her mind, that weight is still a shield around her and dropping that shield would make her have to confront a lot of things, not just what she went through when she was 12, but what she's been going through, the relationships that she's been having that, you know what I'm saying? Like all of the, the mistakes that she's made in her past, the issues that she's dealt with, with other people and how it affected her. Those are all the things that she's going to have to confront in her mind once that barrier goes down. And it's like a vicious cycle for her. She loses the weight and then she starts to remember all the things that made her eat in the first place. So then she eats and then she's, you know what I'm saying? And then she does these things and then she's like, daggone it, I got to lose the weight because people are looking at me weird. I'm no longer, I'm a freak of nature. You know, that's how people, you know, in the book, that's how people tend to see her. And so she's like, well, I want to be what society deems as normal. So let me, lose the weight, but it all goes back to the demons and fighting those demons off and figuring out how to forgive. Cause I don't think she's forgiven herself. And I think that if for her to lose that barrier would mean that she's going to have to face that person that she was at 12, that young, beautiful, lanky little girl mm -hmm. to look in the mirror and face that young lady. And she's going to have to say, I'm sorry, or you're not the one to blame. That's right. Yeah, because we we have to remember when she before the incident happened, she was already withdrawn and in herself, and sort of cut herself off from thinking that anyone would like her or give her attention. Or she just turned to her books, and that was it. And she was lonely, and so there was a lack of self love before the incident happened. And has that been addressed, or has it just been exasperated? And I think. The, I just felt that it was interesting how she portrays the, how visual she was in describing her weight gain as this protection, as this, this form of protection and that she could not be hurt. But then the irony is she's been hurt over and over and over and over again. What did you guys think about when she called, she found the gentleman who abused her or the perpetrator that led at least the gang rape and continued to abuse her and she called him. What did you think about that whole scene when she shared that? And her reaction once he answered the phone. I'm going to be real honest with you. I don't know if I would have called him. I don't know if I would have had any type of conversation with him. I don't know. I didn't, it didn't go the way I thought it was supposed to go. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Like, I, I don't know why we do the things that we do. Like, I, this book was, it was very frustrating for me, but also it was like a book that I needed to read as well. So I don't know. What do you think, Toby? I, I just didn't want her to call him in the first place, so. Yeah, I don't think it was cathartic or anything of value. I don't even understand why she did it, to be honest, because it, it didn't make sense to me. So I think that 
I don't understand her reasoning behind a lot of the stuff that she did. And I really felt through the entire book kind of sad. I was hoping for, you know, how you listen to a book and she starts the book out saying that basically prefacing, Hey, I didn't lose the weight, like warning us the whole way. Like, so that we know at the end, she didn't lose the weight, but yet I'm a hopeful person. And no, I don't expect her to be thin, but I certainly here's in on her behalf. What I, I would say is I think that it's, it's not fair to say that she is not mentally better than ever. I think that partially, even when like you can be in a good place mentally, I think my husband's in a, a very good place. I'm in a, in a good place. And the disease is more than just mentally in a good place. There's, I think the name of the book is so good, Hunger. There is like an innate, when you have an eating disorder, which this is what this is, and I, I relate to this, or Barbara, maybe when you think you should lose weight, but you don't, you could be in the best place of your life, but still overeat mm, because- Absolutely. I can, and it's because it's like, it's your body is craving it. It's just like mm. sugar. That you ever talk to someone and they stop eating sugar and they're like, you would not believe it, but I really never crave sugar. I want to get there one day, but I believe oh, yeah. them. So mm. like she could literally be, as healthy mentally as she's ever been in her life and still overeat because it's almost like a bodily crave. And I know that for my husband, like he'll eat at night. It's not because he's depressed anymore. Like maybe that's what happened when he was growing up. And that's why he ended up with an eating disorder with bulimia and college and all that. And of course I meet him and fall in love with him and he's got that. But, but I don't think it's that anymore. I think it's actually deeper than that. It's like a bodily crave that it's so hard to break that. Mm. Like it's hard. So she, for us to sit here and on our seats and say like, she's just mentally, if she was better, she wouldn't overeat. I don't necessarily think that's true. I don't know her personally, but I think I can be in a really great mental state and still have my eating disorder. And I mean, it's, cause it's a comfort, but it's a habit. It's, it's a, a habit. habit. It's a hard habit. Right. I think those are excellent points that you make, Toby. And I feel that my question isn't, is she going to stop overeating? because she's mentally better. I think for me, it was, I just saw the journey that she took us through so interesting and sad on so many levels. And when she picked up the phone and called the gentleman, at least my interpretation, the tone was, she was almost like seeking something. And like, she was curious. She thought about him. She even said in a weird way, it would like flip-flop between, is it pain is it pleasure? And I could be wrong, but I think that's what I got from it. And at that young age, when that happens to you, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, that you're still growing and developing and there's a lot happening all at once. And then you have this bam, this very traumatic experience, which is super confusing on so many levels. And I was just intrigued on what, what does she want to accomplish from that conversation if she decided to speak? And it just showed me that she hasn't really closed that chapter. Like she hasn't fully healed from that incident. Forget the everything that's come after that, but there's something there that's undealt with that has to happen. And maybe that's the catalyst. Maybe just having her voice heard because when she was yelling and screaming and saying stop, her voice wasn't heard. And maybe that's what needs to happen. I think just because you're sitting across from someone in a chair expressing what happened to you doesn't heal you. It's a place to share your voice I and mean, it could heal and, and for some it doesn't, but it's, it's a place potentially of non-judgment for you to speak and share. But I feel that maybe we talked about control. We talked about attractiveness. We talked about habits. We 
talked about being in a good mental place, but maybe it also includes just being heard. And Barbara, you had shared, and she even said she's she wasn't trying to be seen, but now she's seen in a way where she can't hide and she doesn't really want that. And so she's being seen. And a lot of times that's what we really want is being seen, but being seen for who we are beyond the physical. Like who knows? She, yes, she's being seen in this very public way, but she's not, no one's seen that inner child that's maybe still crying, that's still shivering, that's still yelling. And maybe that's what she wants. She wants someone to ask her, penetrate those layers from an emotional standpoint, verbal standpoint, you know, where she can start feeling safe for that little child to come out and be ready to play again, to be ready to feel safe again. So anyway, that's what's going through my mind now as we're sharing. It was just, wow, she found him, she called him, she's wondering about him. But it's not in this, oh, I can't wait to tell him off. It wasn't in that way. And so maybe it's her just being hurt. Maybe it's, that's what she's seeking. I mean, I think also like it's, I think it's forgiveness of yourself, like almost like blaming yourself. Like she, I think she, I don't know if she's forgiven herself. I think it's also like, like almost like a savage curiosity that, that makes you frustrated. Like what if I had a normal childhood? What if that never happened? What would I be? I sometimes think like, what if my parents didn't get divorced? What if like, but we can't go back there. And it's the most infuriating thing because you can't redo it. You can't Mm. redo it. Or what if I would have told my parents and all those what ifs lead her to almost like not forgive herself for Mm. what happened and all the decisions that she made, but like forgiveness and grace, which is, is true. is just like saying like, it's okay. I cannot go back. Let it go. I cannot go back and change it. I can't go back and tell my parents. I can't go back and not see that boy. I cannot go back for me and do whatever. I can't go back and and change the way I raised my children and fix things that were not perfect. And we cannot go back. We can't go back and repeat the good. Can't go back and repeat and change the bad. But it's like that torture that you can't and letting it go and being present, like the power of now, there's nothing to be gained from that story in the past for her. That book that in our prior season, The Power of Now is so, we always have to revisit these books because they're great tenants, but we forget them. But to embrace right now that all we have is this moment mm. and let go of that, it, there's freedom in that. So and true. So, I, I, yes. I, wish that, oh, yes. I wish that for her. I wish that for her because I think she's yes. incredible. Absolutely. Incredible lady. And what strength. What strength. Absolutely. And it's like, I've, prior to reading this book, I've told you ladies that I've followed her on Twitter and she does. She has a powerful voice. She has a powerful voice. So when I read this book, I'm not going to lie. I'm very conflicted. As you can see, I'm very conflicted. I'm all over the place. But I'm happy that I read it. As frustrating as it was for me to read it, I do believe that this book is going to be a message for others who have read it, whether whatever they take from it. But I do feel that there are going to be people that will read this book and get something positive out of it for themselves, whether it's mostly for me, I felt like we have to get to the heart of our issues and we have to overcome that which is killing us. Whether we see it or not, we have to identify Mm. the issue. We have to confront that issue and then we have to overcome it. And that's what this book has told me. That's what is speaking Mm. to me. Mm. I love that. When, as you both were sharing, what came to mind was her struggles that were in result of her weight when she got injured or I think I think she broke her ankle or something like that the traveling the issue with her traveling the 
of course, the relationships and the verbally abusive relationships that she had encountered as well. And so the very thing that she turned to to protect her had become and weaponed against her as well. And again, it's just going back to this observational perspective, Toby, that just brought out with the power of now is what we have is this moment. And she is echoing what Barbara said, a powerful woman. I mean, you have to be powerful to endure a three-person gang rig. I'm just saying. You have yeah. to be and not lash out in a violent way against others and yourself. So she is more powerful than most. And to go through that and then still be able to academically focus to get into Yale. And then eventually, it was all an illusion. Eventually it crumbled and she got lost and left school and all this stuff. But anyway, I love what you shared, Barbara, as well, and and Toby, as, as your last points, where this is what's happening. Let me confront it. Let me surround myself with people who truly adore me and love me. And let's take this journey together. And, you know, her parents had just recently found out. So they're now on her team and she has her significant other, which is on her team. And now she has all of these readers that are on her team. And that's what we need. We all have our stories. We all have our burdens. We all have our vices. But if we come back to this present moment and we confront it, so what Toby said, coming back to the present moment, Barbara, confront it and deal with it, but without judgment, right? Like a lot of this is coming back to the whole self-judgment, self-judgment, self-judgment. Without judgment, then we can start healing. And what I am sending out to Roxanne is just love, 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 and excited to maybe get the follow-up as you are healed and, can, and or continuing to heal and all the amazing things that's come from that part yeah, of her journey. And let's be, let's be real. Like she's had, she's a, she got her PhD. She does research. She's a famous author. She's had all these wonderful accomplishments along the way as well. But again, there's this pain that is still there that's creating this hunger, right? And I just want to share with anyone who is listening, if you currently have an eating disorder, please share with anyone you trust. If it's a teacher, it's and someone that can help guide you, someone that can take you to another person or a resource or, or a clinician or a practitioner, or someone shared or just share with someone, anyone that you trust and give them the permission to share with someone they trust if you don't have the those resources around you to go to and start creating that team around you that truly wants to help you and, and love and get you through this. So I just want to share that. And if you know someone that's going through an eating disorder, share. Like, don't keep it to yourself. Oh, it's my best friend. I don't want her to be embarrassed. I don't, no, share. And more than likely, they want you to. They need help. They want help. True. So I just wanted to put that out there. I think. And have compassion for others who are going through it. Compassion for yourself if you're going through it. I did not know I had an eating disorder, to be honest with you. I took a friend who had an eating disorder that was more textbook. She was purging, but not through laxatives like I was. And the clinician handed us both surveys. And I said, why, why are you handing me a survey? I'll never forget this. I was like 20. And he's like, oh, because most people that are with people have them too. And it was like, check the boxes above that relate to you. And I had mm. checked like three and they said one or more, you have a disorder. And I was struck 
So I did not know I had a disorder. You don't hear many people talking about laxatives as a disorder because that's not the typical. It's when people are growing up, for lack of a better word, that's bulimia. So sometimes connecting with other people that and sharing your journey, you might be helping others. If your circle is small, chances are someone in your circle has it too. And you can be a, both of us. I wouldn't say we were cured, but both of us snapped out of it after that trip mm. to the, because we were shocked. And we were lucky enough to have such a deep, immediate shock to our systems that shifted. But I think compassion for each other, compassion for yourself in understanding and not judging. The worst thing you can do is judge someone else when they struggle with an eating disorder because you actually push them away. Mm. So don't judge people. Be nice. And don't assume it's so easy. It's not. Mm. Love that. Any final words, Barbara, before we wrap up? Just embrace yourselves with those who love you. I believe when something isn't right in your in your heart, speak out and speak mm-hmm. out to, to those who you you know and you feel have always been there for you mm-hmm. because they will continue to be there for you. They will be that shield. They will be that comfort. They will be that armor around you mm-hmm. and they will help. They will help. They'll help you more than you think, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's all I have to say. I love it. Just like you two. You two are. (laughs) Same, same. Yeah. This is a powerful book. I had no idea what I was stepping into when I read it, like most of our books that we're recommending to each other. And I think what's so incredible about this book club is that every book comes right on time. And there was so much that I took from it that I could pass on and share and then to get a better understanding as well. And then to reflect on what are my vices? I think to your point, Toby, you don't wake up and say, oh, I have a disorder or I have a disease or I have a mental health problem. You know, <laughs> doing it. you're just doing. And I think that by having these conversations and stories, sharing these stories, reading books like this and talking about it can help give someone that insight to say, huh, maybe I should talk to someone. Maybe I should take a survey. Maybe I should ask questions. So this was wonderful. I think it's a powerful message that no matter where you are in your life, you're going to get something from it. And it's very common, but I think more common than eating disorders are the, is the self-judgment that gets us to these, attracts us to these vices. So yeah, as someone said earlier in the podcast, let's give ourselves more grace and more compassion and more self-love. So thank you so much for joining us on another episode of Tuesday's Book Club. Always, always a pleasure to share these conversations and transformational books with my beautiful co-hosts, Toby and Barbara. And if you joined in the middle of the show and you didn't hear the next two books on our list, we are reading The Cafe on the Edge of the World by John Strzelecki and Sacred Hopes by Phil Jackson. So make sure you grab those books, start reading ahead so you can join in on the next episode of Tuesday's Book Club exclusively on the Pink Kangaroo Podcast Network. And that's Kangaroo with the U. Until next time, guys. Ciao. Bye. Everyone. 